1: Welcome to the Aughts and Audible's podcast. I'm my premier, Eric Scopel. Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to your Monday edition of the Aughts and Audible's podcast. Mailbag, uh, Oregon's coming off an uh, impressive w- victory, victory up at Seattle uh, against those Washington Huskies. And they made a coaching change happen with how things played out. We're going to talk a lot about that game, I think. We're going to talk a lot about... Uh, what's next to come for this oregon football team eric's got the questions and sounds like we had maybe one of the most uh interactive weeks in a long time of of questions being submitted
0: yeah we're getting a really nice rhythm here from the fans so i appreciate those listening submitting questions we're we're getting a surplus where we're having to, to to parse through these and pick from a really i think good variety of questions and I know it's just gonna keep getting larger and larger the further we get into this, the more we get into college football playoff talk, the the more that's at stake and on the line. So appreciate that, keep those coming. If you didn't get a question in this week, we'll look to get you in next week. Um, Again, your question has to be maybe better than it did in the past because you have competition, a lot of competition now um, for me to pick through. So we'll start with one from at Hodges underscore Ryan. I thought this was a good barometer question just to kind of see where, where our heads are at right now. On a scale of one to 10, What is your confidence level that the Ducks can win out? And I assume that means regular season through the Pac-12 championship game, which they would play in, honestly, very close to clinching that this weekend against Washington State. Um, Matt, do you want to start there? And we can just go a little around the circle here. What's your confidence level on a perfect end of the regular season?
1: I feel better about Oregon beating a Utah team in the Pac-12 championship at Las Vegas than I do going – to Rice Eccles Stadium and in, in Salt Lake City in two weeks. Um I think that's the game I'm the most concerned about um over the next three. I think it's fairly likely that if Oregon wins this weekend and then Utah wins this weekend, uh those two teams have locked up the the, the Pac twelve North and the Pac twelve South and sets up a, mm-hmm. a rematch two weeks later in, in Vegas. So let's just assume Utah and Oregon play twice here in the next four games. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably say – I hate doing 1-10s, to tens, but I would probably say like a 7 that they went out. Um, could Would not be surprised if in the next four games they slip up once. I do not think they, they lose more than once. Um, but odds are in their favor that they went out. Um, in between a 6 and a 7 kind of for me.
2: six and a half from Matt. Jared, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to answer it right away. I'll I'll give it a six, straight up. No six and a halves here. Um, No half points. Yeah, you know, There's Eric, you and I talked about this a little bit yesterday. Um, Oregon, when they can operate at a high level on both sides of the ball, kind of feel like they could beat almost anybody in the country. Uh, It just depends what happens on a game-to-game basis. Because against Colorado, you could say that the offense was firing on all cylinders. Against Washington, you could say that the defense was firing on all cylinders, but they just don't put it together enough to have this unbelievable confidence in them that they're going to, you know, go out there and win every single game. And but still, a game like Saturday's against Washington kind of gives me a little more confidence going into the going on the road to a tough environment, their rival. They get off to probably the worst start possible. I, I don't know what else could happen. Maybe a lightning strike, but. <laughs> I mean anything else but they still you know figured it out towards the end of the half and then dominated Washington in the second half so the games like that kind of give you a confidence factor where it's like okay this team just wins they just know how to win uh, they don't do it pretty the style points aren't there but that's okay when you're just needing a win that's all they need for for here on out we'll See the college football playoff selection committee or at least their second week rankings on tuesday but for now they just need to continue to win and winning out is going to be difficult like matt was talking about it's basically almost a guarantee that the Pacto north and south will be decided next week and it'll be oregon and oregon and utah going two times in three weeks basically so i'll give it a six i think that's where we'll stay for right now
0: i'll go seven just to be slightly more optimistic, we're all like right in the same bunch there. And I think that's right because that brings up a good point. This Utah team has been playing at a really high level of late in conference play Oregon and Utah have very similar resumes right now um, in terms of record, in terms of, Quality of opponent, victory. Um, the the big difference there being that Utah has won more decisively, almost across the board in these games, and has scored a lot of points. They've averaged about 40 points per game in conference play. Um, I think their offense has been really surprising. This is an offense that really struggled with Charlie Brewer. Now with Cameron Rising in at quarterback, they've just kind of figured things out, and their run offense has been amazing. We'll get to some of that later. Um, It's going to be hard to beat that team twice, and I agree with Matt. That one in Mm -hmm. Salt Lake City, for those that haven't been down there, that's a really tough place to play. Um, I was down there uh, back in 18 when Oregon had a terrible start and couldn't recover and and really almost basically lost the game in the first quarter and a half. Um, They came back, made it kind of interesting late, but they had so much uh, ground to make up they couldn't. So that's going to be a really tough game. Um, My confidence level is pretty high now based upon what we've seen from Oregon State, that Oregon will win that game. Beavers are really struggling right now. This Washington State game won't be easy either. Um, But I I, I like Oregon to win their home games, the games away from home, whether it be in Salt Lake City or in the conference championship game down in Las Vegas. Those are games that are going to be very difficult to win. That's where I think the pressure of this is going to come down. And the fact, again, that Utah is playing Quite clearly, like the we've been waiting for a while. Who's the number two team in this conference? Utah has kind of taken that and run with it, and I think quite clearly is that team. Now can Oregon put them away? And again, this is where I get frustrated because if if they'd made the change earlier or, or Cameron and Rising had just started the season, I kind of wonder what the perception about this Oregon-Utah games are going to be. And it might be games where both teams are top 12, top 15 ranked teams. Mm-hmm. I mean, Utah hadn't lost to both BYU and San Diego State in non-conference play where they were scoring. Like, 16 and 33 points and since they made the change have been scoring about 40 points some of that has to do with the defenses they played but uh, it, It's tough because I think Utah's a pretty darn good team playing at a really high level I don't know if people nationally have been paying attention enough I'll be curious to see if they get you know if they're even sniffing some of these rankings I know they only had how many votes did they have Jared in the AP poll It was like 30 wasn't very many.
2: 31, 41, something that ended with a one.
0: Something ended a one. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I, I, we'll see on Tuesday if they're even in the college Ball playoff rankings. I don't know if I expect them to be. Oregon really needs the Utes to take care of business, and then Oregon needs to win both those games to help solidify their positioning. And, and I, by that, I don't mean that they're going to be in the playoff, but you really want to be a two or a three seed so you can avoid Georgia. All right, next one from at Unique Syntax. How much wear and tear can die take by the end of the season? We're working him really hard, and I'm worried he'll get injured like this. Um, I get the concerns from an injury perspective because this has been an, an atrocious year from an Oregon perspective in terms of key players staying healthy, and it does feel almost like every time a player takes his game up a level, he goes down with a serious injury. So I, where I think we're all knocking on wood and, and hoping he remains healthy. Um, this is where, the, the, where we wanted, and, and I think we're starting to see it, the, I guess, value of Byron Cardwell and another running back stepping mm-hmm. up. Oregon had to use Travis Dye at a career high almost in carries against Washington, 28. But imagine if you didn't have Byron Cardwell and Die had to carry those other 16. You're talking about like 40 something carries. That's completely untenable, and that's where you do see, I think, concerns, especially with the players that have slide to build as Travis. So, um, I, I think you'd love to see over these next three games into the conference championship, have him carry it 15 to 22 times. Don't let him get close to 30 carries. That's a that's a huge workload. Um, And especially against a Utah defense, which is, I don't think it's, again, Utah's been winning in part because of its offense more than its defense, which I think surprises some folks. But it's still a really physical front with a bunch of NFL caliber guys. So, yeah, I think you have to manage the reps here and you've got to be careful. And of course, you want to make sure you're winning the football games, which is why Travis is carrying the ball as much as he did, because that helped ensure they won. At the same time, Mm -hmm. you do want to be careful and cognizant of this guy probably shouldn't be carrying it 28 plus times again this season.
1: I, and we we asked this when Verdell went down, um, and what happened after that was one of his heaviest usage games of the season uh, in his career against California. 19, Nineteen carries for 145 yards. We asked this um, going into the Washington game. I even said it at halftime that this that was a game in which Oregon needed a CJ Verdell to. Grind out four yards every play because the weather inclements and Washington's defense was making it tough to throw. And then Verdell, then C.J. Travis went out for 28 carries in that game for 211 yards in a career high. Um, I, I get the the skepticism. I, I get the worry, um, but at the same time, he's answered the call every time when yeah. Oregon has needed it and. He's come out feeling fresh. He's come out in the fourth quarter running hard. Um, he's not wearing down in that fourth quarter. I would argue that instead of worrying about the amount of touches that CJ Verdell gets, I would argue it's more important that Oregon finds a running mate, a consistent running mate to go with him so that he doesn't have to have, you know, you don't look at it and say, Hey we need you to to go 40 carries because there's no one else out there, or 35 carries because there's no one else out there. They went 28 carries against Washington because he was doing well and because he was getting stronger as the game went on. That's why he got to 28 carries. I would argue it's more important Brian Cardwell and Anthony Brown be effective as complementary runners than worrying about Travis Dye's durability.
2: I mean, it's totally fair to worry about his durability in terms of, like, answering the question. Um, you know, Dye is not the same body type as C.J. Verdell. And interestingly enough, it does seem like C.J. Verdell gets hurt more often than Travis Dye. But, yeah, yeah I mean, he's – to me, he's never been in a, a between-the-tackles type running back. Um, right. He's certainly proving us wrong with mm-hmm. his performance against Washington and so far after Verdell's injury. Um but yeah, like that yeah. said – just getting Byron Cardwell and and getting him reps and making sure that he's the primary number two back, I think, is really important because uh, you know Cardwell wasn't nearly as good as Travis Dye, but that's that you know that's asking a lot of of, of Cardwell to be as good as Die. Um, he's a different type of runner. He's a hard, physical runner. He had at least three moments where he uh, converted third down and threes and fours, um, <clears throat> really showed off his his strength as a true freshman. Uh, had some, to me, it reminded me a little bit of, of Royce Freeman, just his using his legs to power drive opponents back and never giving up on a, on a first down play. But uh, him and, like Matt said, him and Anthony Brown need to be complementary of each other. Um, I think Oregon's offense did a really good job of that against Washington. Uh, Anthony Brown had a couple good you know, 9 to 11-yard runs. Um, but I, I still think like the rushing attack is going to be solid. And this is all because of how well the offensive line is played. Um, and if if die can can get less than twenty eight carries, it'd be great. Um, <laughs> I I'd be all for it if they can you know find themselves in a position to win, and die can get I don't know, somewhere from sixteen to twenty carries. I think that would be an ideal little little pocket. Um, but again, like Matt was saying, the weather, uh, the circumstances. Washington is like the best pass defense in the country. Uh, Anthony Brown's really slow start in the pass game. You know, this is a game where. If C.J. Verdell were healthy, I think he'd get, like, 30 carries. I think Dye would get the remaining 20. Um, like, this was a ground-and-pound game from what should have been the very start. It happened to be a ground-and-pound game from, like, the second quarter on for Oregon. But uh, it's certainly – I certainly understand why people would be worried about Travis Dye getting injured. Because if, he's goes down, if he goes down, then there's a real, real problem with Oregon's offense.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think some of this sorts itself out in terms of if, if Oregon can build early leads, which is what you'd hope to see against Washington State, which, of course, would be very difficult to accomplish against Utah, which would be, I think, somewhat accomplishable against Oregon State. Although, who knows? That team is very up and down. They're definitely in a downward funk, if you will, right now. The Beavers are just having lost a couple games that maybe the teams they shouldn't have, I would say. Um, but yeah, if you can build leads and you can make it sort of like what happened against Colorado. I know I know Di had, I think, three touchdowns in that game, and still had a decent workload. But you remember the second and third drives, he wasn't on the field at all yeah. in that first half because they were confident enough in getting those players in there. And, and part of that was just the success they were having. And also part of it was scripted because they're aware of what we're talking about. But I, I, I do think build the early leads, make it so he doesn't need to be on the field in the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. That's where, you know That's where he finishes these games. And that's where he had... That second half, how many carries of his 28 were in that second half? It was a lot of them.
2: I think it was 15.
0: Yeah, so maybe it's was a 50-50 split. But if you can make it a situation where he can have 15 carries in the first half and five in the second, that's going to help diminish his workload too or, or whatever the number is like that. You'd love it to be like two-thirds carries first half, a third in the second half so he doesn't have to work himself too much in the second. All right, another Travis Dye question from at Fan 541 If Dye continues to play out of his mind the rest of the year, what are the chances he gets invited to New York for the Heisman Trophy Ceremony? Hashtag odds and audibles. Thank you for using the hashtag. A lot of you did, some of you didn't. It does make it easier for me to find it. As you can tell, I'm uh, open to using non-hashtag questions, just as I am to ones that use it, but it does help. It makes it a little easier for me to find your questions. Um, I pulled up, by the way, the latest odds. Um, and die is not mentioned here. Um, best odds right now, Alabama quarterback Bryce Young uh plus 185 still a wide open race and I think mm-hmm. this would be a year where maybe somebody like a die could come out of nowhere and kind of throw himself into this conversation I think it's kind of warranted based upon the fact that Oregon is playing as well as it is and he's having since CJ Verdell went down incredible production you know two games over 100 yards rushing the other two games he scored at least three touchdowns he has um, I believe like nine touchdowns in the last four games it's been pretty remarkable effort from Travis Dye um, the odds of him getting invited. This is where I was we're talking about this by the way, just a brief digression before we, we I toss it over to Matt. But we were we had this conversation in the car on the drive back from Seattle of imagine if for whatever reason CJ Verdell was either not on this team or he was his injury happened at the start of the season and Travis Dye had the CJ Verdell game in Columbus, and he had that Heisman Trophy game, and then he has the Washington right. game, and then he has, you know, the great performance he had with all those touchdowns and setting that NCAA record against UCLA, he'd have peppered through in all the big games, these big moments to point to. I think the fact that he was splitting carries, and by the way, you go look at how he was performing in those early games, the numbers are still really good. He just wasn't getting more than 10 to 12 carries in those games. Um, if he would have had some of that production against Ohio State, and you would be looking up and saying, oh man, he's already at a thousand yards, which by the way, having been a starter for just half of these games, he 820 yards rushing and like 11 touchdowns. That's pretty darn impressive. Um, I think he can still get invited. I don't think there's any chance he could probably win the award unless it's just absolutely unbelievable stuff. And he replicates what he did in Seattle like every week. And you look up and suddenly he has 1,600 yards and 19 yeah. touchdowns or something like that. Um, I, think he could, I think he could maybe get invited. I'm not holding my breath. I think it's hard because he hasn't been the key guy the whole season. Um, again, if Oregon wins out, I hope there is at least some recognition of what he's done. Because he's going to be the key, you know a key catalyst in pace, pacing the way for this offense to make a run, and it's an offense that I think everybody will objectively say has not had the best quarterback play, and it hasn't always mattered, and that's partly because of Travis Die on the ground.
1: I think he should be the the winner of the Pac-12 Player of the Year on the mm-hmm. offensive side of the football. I think. I agree. I, I think that right now is his his award to win. To get into the top 25 is going to be – to get into the Heisman discussion is tough. He is in the top 20 in total yards from scrimmage this season. He's 18th um, in the country. He averages 121.9 yards per game. Um, but like you said, Eric, it's going to require him to get to, get to New York and to get there and be in a, a seat as a, as a contestant for the award. He is going to need to to rush for nearly 200 yards Mm -hmm. in the next four games and probably somehow find a way to have 10 total touchdowns in the next four games. Um, It's going to be astronomically hard to do. Now, he could, with a strong senior season, with a strong junior year, and finishing this year off with a bang and he decides to come back to Oregon next season, he right. could position himself as maybe not the favorite, certainly not the favorite, I think, but one of those guys that's in the discussion early on next year as a Heisman candidate.
2: I don't, I mean, to answer the question, what are Travis Dye's odds of getting to New York? Negative. <laughs> like, I don't think there's any chance he gets invited to New York. It's just... Like Eric was saying, you know, you look at this Oregon team, this offense. If if Travis Dyer were the lone running back, it'd be a different story. But once you kind of compare his stats to Kenneth Walker the third from Michigan State, who's like the leading running back in terms of Heisman odds, it's night and day. It's really not comparable. Um, Then again, you know, Walker has 60 more carries than Dye does, but he also has 500 more yards than Dye does this season, and five more touchdowns and. Has ha, has already had some of his Heisman moments, quote unquote Heisman moments. I think they're all kind of silly. This is the year, however, mm-hmm. if there were to be something yeah. to go down, um, there isn't a good Heisman candidate. Bryce Young is is the is the leader in the odds, like Eric said, at plus one eighty five. Uh, he's had some recent clunkers. There is no Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields. Uh, like there's no good elite running back who's walking through this hallway right now. Kenneth Walker's really, really good. I really like watching him play for Michigan state. Um, he's by far the most impressive running back on it in terms of coming to a Heisman potential. But again, this is, this is, this is the year. You know, there's no elite quarterback. There's no um, there's Georgia. Who's like the only elite elite team. And in years prior, we've had, Clemson and Bama and, and Georgia, maybe some Oklahoma love in there where they're like, oh, those are three elite teams. Like th- those those teams are going 12-0 this season. There's only one of those this year. And the players, the top talent at, uh, for college football kind of reflects that where you know we all kind of thought Spencer Rattler might be somebody who gets Heisman buzz and he gets replaced in week seven by Caleb Williams. Um this is just the kind of the season that go that's going uh i really am impressed with what travis has been doing this year if enough people watched him across the country he would get more national recognition um but it won't be for the heisman i just think he's not going to have the stats at the end of the year to really say he deserves a chance at the heisman and but he's certainly oregon's heisman He's certainly, the, the right now, I think he should be the Pac-12 player of the year, like Matt said. Um, and there's nothing that Oregon's offense has shown me the last few weeks that makes me think that he won't continue to perform at a high level and keep adding to those stats.
0: Fourth run from at Nash underscore Deccanier. Love the name. I think this isn't the first time I've read it, but I'm a fan. Based on what you have seen so far this season, which do you feel better about right now? Oregon's offense moving the ball against Utah's defense, Were Oregon's defense stopping Oregon State's rushing attack? Hashtag outs and audibles. I've prepared quite a bit of an answer here. I don't want to be a ball hog. So, Matt, I'm going to pass it to you, and I'll finish this answer just because I don't want to talk for, like, three minutes, and it seemed like you guys don't get your word in. So go ahead, Matt. (laughs) Um,
1: I I feel pretty good about Oregon being able to um, run against anyone Mm -hmm. uh, in the conference. Um, I I think Oregon's offensive line is the best offensive line in the conference. I think the depth of Oregon's offensive line could be argued as – and I'm not saying they are, but I think that that you could argue that that they're in the discussion from a top-seven perspective of players on your depth chart as the the deepest. Yeah, agreed. Um, There's been no drop-off, and we're seeing – crazy lineups we're seeing different starting lineups um in game guys are playing out of position and there has been zero drop off in terms of oregon how and oregon success rushing the football and i think they've done a really good job the last three or four weeks of protecting anthony brown as well Mm -hmm. um so i i i would probably feel better about oregon being able to run against utah's front seven um I think BJ Baylor is really good. I think Oregon State's offensive line is really good, but I think Oregon's defensive line is also underrated. So, can I can I say I feel good about both? Like,
0: yeah, Matt, that's that's actually my answer. Not to not not to be a spoiler, that's my answer. I picked door number three, and we'll get into that in a moment. But I think that's actually a pretty fair analysis.
2: Um, I think the easy answer here is for Oregon's offense against Utah's front seven. Uh, Like Matt said, Oregon can run the ball against anybody in the conference, and I I feel confident in saying that, and I think we've seen it so far this season. Um, Certainly saw it against Washington. It was a very impressive performance on the ground. Um, As far as Oregon's defense stopping Oregon State, Oregon State leads the conference in rushing yards per game. I think it's like 220 the last time I checked. I'm sure it's updated by now. But there are games where Oregon's defensive line is really good, like like against washington or against ucla where you know they they held washington to 55 total yards on the ground um i forgot what the total number was for ucla but it was their lowest rushing performance of the season it's like 110 i think somewhere in that range sure and you know those games you're you sit there and you're like this all right this defensive line is pretty good but then you have a game at, against Colorado where it doesn't go so well against you know, like a Colorado offensive line that hasn't played great all season long. They just got a new offensive line coach. And so to answer what I feel better about, I would defer to Oregon's offense moving the ball against Utah's front seven. I can see why you could pick both. I have more confidence in the offensive perspective rather than the defensive perspective, however. Yeah,
0: yeah, I just have some data and maybe I'll make it quicker because I just think we're all in agreement here. So I don't need to belabor it too much. But um, Oregon's offense is second in the Pac-12 in both total offense and scoring offense. Utah is third in terms of total defense, fifth in scoring defense. Oregon State, for example, scored 42 points on Utah. Um, UCLA, with a backup quarterback, scored 24 points. I'm not trying to say they're not good, but it's like there's clearly evidence of teams recently having some success. Stanford not being one of them. That's also Stanford no. without its starting quarterback no, no, no. and with a heap of other injuries. Um, that I think those stats are going to be kind of skewed a little bit. and People are going to misrepresent that a little bit just because Oregon faced a much different Stanford team down in Palo Alto a few weeks ago or about a month ago now. Um, and then to the Oregon offense, or sorry, Oregon rush defense against Oregon State, uh, rush offense, Oregon second in the Pac-12 in rush defense, Oregon State first in rushing offense, strength on strength. And my point is, I think it's kind of strength on strength regardless here. I would say that of, of just these two team of these teams we're talking about right now, if we want to focus on them, I would be maybe most worried about Oregon's defense against Utah's offense of that, just because Utah's offense is on a, a heck of a run right now. 39 points per game. They've had 180 or more yards rushing in all six Pac-12 games. They've had more than 290 the past two weeks. Um, Utah has scored more than 35 points in all those games since Cameron Rising has been elevated over Charlie Brewer. um, Utah has the top-ranked scoring offense in the conference, uh, the second-best rush offense. I I, I say all this to say if we're going to compare – Oregon State's offense to Utah's offense, Oregon State has a better offense statistically right now than Oregon State. So because I feel really good, like Matt and, and Jared have established about Oregon running the ball against everybody, regardless of kind of their defensive prowess. Um, and maybe that's an overused word recently. but uh, it wasn't intentional, but there it is. Um, but I, I just I just think of, of these two teams, of what kind of concerns me the both about both matchups, It would probably actually be utah's offense against oregon's defense that doesn't mean i think oregon can't have a good game against them i just think that actually might be the bigger strength with utah which gets overlooked because they've been so good defensively they've got a really good offense right now that's really trucking all right a couple more to go here fifth one from at sundog 80. how much would it in how much would it impact oregon and the pac-12 conference with a year like this if they played one less conference game like the sec hashtag uh, arts and audibles I think this is a good question because I think you just look around and go, "Boy, it would be a much easier season if Oregon didn't have to play nine conference games. This is the slog." And like we talked about, like for example, what if Oregon didn't have to play Utah? You know, if 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 there was an eight game, or sorry, it's an eight game rather than a nine game schedule, you'd remove one matchup with the Pac-12 South. So you're talking about you either don't play UCLA, you don't play Colorado or Arizona, or you don't play Utah. And if you took Utah off the schedule. Oregon is running the table in conference play, I think, pretty clearly because the game next weekend down in Rice Eccles is probably at home against, shoot, Idaho State, Sam Houston State, something like that. And it's a game you feel really good about Oregon winning. That's not to say that Oregon can't beat Utah, but it would change the dynamics. Now, if you want to throw on the flip side and let's say you remove Colorado or Arizona, that just makes your strength of schedule a lot better probably, or, or at least pretty similar, depending upon who you schedule to fit there. You weren't, you probably aren't going to find an opponent that you would play. That would be that much worse than Arizona or Colorado from a strength of schedule perspective. So I think, and, and again, winning those games would probably have about the same feel, but they would have a less pressure because it's not a conference opponent. Um, I say this to say, like, I think it would be beneficial, especially if they somehow skipped Utah. Um, you mm-hmm. know, that would make their schedule again, the strength of schedule wouldn't be anywhere near as good, but, I think we've kind of seen now that if Oregon was to run the table, we feel like they're going to make it regardless of kind of who they're beating. Um, if you didn't have to play Utah and the only matchup with Utah was down in Las Vegas in a couple of weeks, a, by the way, that would strengthen Utah's resume. There's one fewer loss there. And that would make that game potentially a game where it could really be two top 15 or so teams. Still um, the way it's set up Oregon against Utah is going to eliminate one of those teams, not eliminate, but knock one of those teams down, which is going to hurt well, either eliminate Oregon entirely from the college football playoff or make that win against Utah not look as strong in a couple of weeks. So um, I think it would be really significant when you kind of look into it a little deeper.
1: The the interesting note, because I'm in agreement, but the interesting note here is you wouldn't be adding a Portland State to the schedule because Oregon's already played their FCS team. Sure. So you would be getting probably a little tougher of a game that you would normally think of, but we'd be talking about Oregon playing uh, a New Mexico State or right. a New Mexico, and not like a Tech, uh, Vanderbilt or a Northwestern, um, or even like another like Boise State or San Jose State type of opponent. Mm-hmm. But I'm in agreement. Yeah, like it, it would it, everything in the conference would would be better because Utah presumably would have played a, a, a lesser opponent and would have won that game. And instead of being five and three on the season, that, that's a record, right? Or six and three. Yeah, six and um, three. They would be seven and two, and we would, without a doubt, be talking about, oh boy, look off into the distance next week. Oregon's going to have a top twenty-five showdown against a seven and two Utah team that could be barking on the on, knocking on the door of a top fifteen ranking um, if they had top 25 top 20 ranking if if they had one more win um so yeah i'm in agreement like i've if you've listened to this podcast for a while you've heard me say this a lot uh the conference has tried like heck to get everyone else that plays eight conference games to go to nine um nick saban of alabama is on record saying he would prefer nine but i think it's also beneficial for the conference and he probably won't say this that they stay at eight and if the league has tried to get everyone else to conform to what the conference in at, at the Pac-12 is doing, and it, it hasn't worked. So now you need to conform to what they're doing, and they're playing eight games. And it would be beyond beneficial to have an extra home game for everybody to make more money for home games. And it would be beyond beneficial to have one less loss for half the teams in the conference.
2: I think – Pac-12's nine-game conference schedule is one of the stupidest things in all of sports. And I don't, like, I said that harshly and I mean it harshly. Um, It's just so silly. This is a conference that is not nationally recognized most of the time. This is a conference that has a team, singular team, in the AP Top 25, Yet they continue to have every single year a nine-game conference schedule where teams just beat up on each other for no damn reason. You look at this and how this affects Oregon, just, just like what Eric said. This either eliminates Utah from their schedule, so they don't have to play them twice in three weeks, which is nuts to begin with, mm-hmm. and, or they eliminate an Arizona or Colorado, which boosts their strength schedule. And honestly, look at, here, here's who Alabama and Georgia are playing this week and next week. Alabama plays New Mexico State this week. Georgia plays Charleston Southern next week. These are layups. These are cupcakes. This is the time of the season to have these games because it's been a long season. You probably have some injuries. You probably need some fun, need some, you know, just let's try some new things before we head into the conference championship week. I don't get it. I'll never understand. And yet here's the Pac-12 who are – the laughing stock of the college football community and they're asking everybody else to go to a nine conference game schedule and they continue to get laughed at. So I am all in favor of adding, or excuse me, eliminating a game from the Pac-12 conference play because it's been like this for far too long.
0: I think it's pretty clear George Klavkoff is aware of this, too. It was one of the things he noted yeah. at his, during his address at Pac-12 Media Day that Matt and I were both out. I thought it was actually pretty – I was like excited and encouraged, I guess, by the fact that he was like, we're looking at maybe going to eight. And I think he's like probably stepping and going like – and I'm sure some of the other schools in the conference are telling him that some of the athletic directors, like, we shouldn't be doing nine. This is a this is making it more difficult than it needs to be. There's a reason the Pac-12 doesn't get teams in the playoff. It's because they're honestly adding difficulty. And because there's no respect for these conference teams anyway, even beating a conference team doesn't necessarily boost you as much as you would think. So, I mean, I would, I say this tongue in cheek half, but like, I would be more like, let's just cut two conference games out and let's go seven, and now we're playing even fewer games against the conference, and you don't have even fewer losses, and now suddenly things look even better. But I know that's totally far fetched. I hope they go to eight, and I would love to see them go to eight as soon as like 2022 um, or 2023. Like, let's get this going because. It, it, you're playing with like an arm behind your back and, and the Pac-12 already is playing without like, basically like maybe Cold a knee. Arms. Yeah, I was gonna say without like a knee and like ankle. The scene from
2: Monte Python. Yeah, yeah they're, they're
0: just like <laughs> both conflicted wounds. So. Jared,
1: um. Jared's right though, like about, this is the, the, the time where Oregon would be playing a New Mexico state and look at what would yes. happen. Jackson Powers Johnson is dealing with an injury. Ryan Walk is dealing with an injury. Uh, You've got Alex Forsyth, who is coming back from injury. Um, You've got guys on the defensive side of the football. Steve Stevens, who's dealing with an injury. Jordan Happel is playing with a club on. Mm -hmm. This is why this is designed in the SEC and the ACC to play these games the second week in November, the the second full week in November. And that's because at this point, like Jared said, your team is battered. They are beat up. They need that extra week and you can beat the FCS team because this is when you would play. Yes. Stony Brook. Right. You could beat Stony Brook with your second and third string teams and be fine. Because look, we're going to see in the next 2 weeks when these games are played across the country, the FBS versus FCS teams. We're going to see a couple games where it's like, "Oh wow, Alabama beat Texas A&M West 38 to 0." Like that's kind of surprising. It's because Alabama didn't play their first string on either side of the football, basically. They, they got maybe one quarter, and then they pulled them. Like And then there was all all second string, all third string guys. And, and, and that's why you're going to see a couple of those scores because, hey, this is a get healthy week. But we're going to get a win, but we're also, more importantly, going to get healthy. College
0: football could use a second bye week, or Oregon at least. Could. I'm in I, favor of that too. I, I was thinking about this, Matt. Do you remember the reason for? Remember back in 19, they did play two. They had two bye weeks. What do you, What was the reason behind that? Was it something, I think it was something
1: with like, like the start dates of, of the season? Um, sort the, the number of Saturdays because the you know the, the, the years are are cycling through, you know, a, a rotation of, of numbers of the season. And I think it was there was just. Because of when the season started, when the season ends, there was just an an abnormal number of Saturdays, which allowed you to have that extra week.
0: I loved it, though. I I loved that. Uh, I I agree. And I would love to. If if, if the Pac-12 is not going to adopt the eight-game schedule, which I I imagine they're really looking heavy at right now, I think they should. Find a way to get another bye week right now. Like, you know, or or find a way to get some creative way to do this because you, you could use a break right now. You don't like a second bye week, Jared?
2: Well, if it's adopted by the NCAA, sure. But if it's the Pac-12, right. it's like I mean, hey guys, here's two yeah. bye weeks, they would get clowned on. Sure, of course. Thank I, I, well, I mean, I understand.
0: I'm just saying, like, if, if there's a way to get a pseudo second bye sure. week, yeah, whether it be an actual that. FCS team or it's just adopting a model where you do have two bye weeks over a season, I just think that. Do you think? Beneficial. Do you think
2: that if they were to to do a second bye week, that they would pull an NFL and add an extra game to the schedule?
0: I mean, maybe. That's just making the season even longer. And now you're looking at bowl, either either you're playing games in mid-August, which moves everything up from fall camp to like you start in mid-June, or you're pushing it now into bowl games or like being played like second week of January. You're getting a college football playoff championship. as close I mean, to February.
2: There's like a month start- off between championship week and the college football playoffs. So, I mean, that's when all the bowls are. So you could probably move the season back one week. I don't
0: know I, think do you
1: moved, I actually think you move you moved the season forward a week okay um, mm. because week zero week week zero in in college football this year was saturday august twenty eighth if that's the the first week of the season for everybody that gives you the second bye week right there
0: mm-hmm.
1: because now Oregon's playing. Fresno State on Saturday the twenty eighth, and then on on Saturday the fourth they're at Ohio State. And Oregon's bye week comes instead of you know early October. It's like the last month. Of, it's like the last week of of September, and then you have another one here the first week or the second week depending on each year of November, and you get that natural break. You you, you play five games, break, you play. Six, you know, four more games break, and then you finish off your last three of the regular
0: season. I'd love to see something like that adopted. Um, We're on a little bit of a digression from the original topic, so let's finish up here with a question from at Dill Williamson. I love that name as well, Um, Matt. This is going to be headed your way because it's recruiting. What's going on with the twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three class? It's very broad, Matt. So um, you you could probably talk on that subject for like an hour, but we'll, we'll hold you to less. And then the next question here also um he asks does the transfer of kingsley sumatia free up a scholarship hashtag um what's the latest with recruiting that
1: yeah um the kingsley departure does open up a scholarship for sure um it, it doesn't necessarily i think organ was always going to sign 23 to 25 26 guys in this recruiting class if they can um So it it helps in that regard. It makes that more likely. Their class is still 10th in the country and and first in the Pac-12 by a long mile. Um, I think it was very important that five-star offensive tackle Kelvin Banks did not go to Texas A&M this past weekend. Um, He was expected to. Um, A&M coaches were expecting him there. Um, Our A&M site was reporting he was going to be on campus, and then Saturday showed up. And he woke up and just chose not to go. And he he's very close to College Station. He lives in the Houston area, which is the biggest city closest to College Station. And he just I think Oregon's coaches probably got on the phone, got word this was happening, um, and convinced him to stay otherwise and not and not go to that game. I think that that in of itself is probably the biggest event the last week or so, even with the two D commitments at receiver. Um, with Nicholas Anderson and Isaiah Setegna departing, um, and I understand why. Like Anderson went to Oklahoma, closer to home, his brother is a is a player there. That's you know that's understandable. It it, it sucks. It doesn't make it any uh, less impactful, but it's under it, it's easy to understand why that happened. And then I, Isaiah Setegna stayed home. He he went to, he went to Arkansas. Um, he flipped to the Razorbacks. And I think Arkansas being a little bit better than expected this season, their passing attack being a little bit better than expected this season probably helps. Um, and everyone's going to argue, Oh, well, this sucks. yada, yada, yada. Well, Oregon's about to do the same thing to Auburn that Arkansas did to them. Um, because Auburn for the longest time has felt like they were in the driver's seat. They were the clear cut leader for four-star receiver Darius Clemens. And then all of a sudden, Oregon gets Clemens to come on campus for an unofficial visit, he's going to come again for another unofficial visit, and all of a sudden, the crystal balls have surged ahead for Oregon to to land him. Um, I put one in a long time ago, and I didn't think he was going to sign with Oregon um, back in July or, or August, but I kept it there because I felt like there was probably a a chance, I'm not going to say a really good chance, but there's probably a chance one of Oregon's receivers would flip because um, they had two from Texas. They had one from Arkansas. McMillan was was an elite guy, was really, really close to going to Arizona and just felt like, hey, it happens. It, maybe, maybe this is a year Oregon loses a guy. And I'm happy I didn't change it because he's probably now going to go to Oregon. And it makes total sense for them to go after Clemens because he is – right around the same ranking as Nicholas Anderson. He's just as tall, if not taller, than Nicholas Anderson. Um, I do think they need to find a speed guy uh, if they're going to bring in um, another receiver on top of Clemens. Let's assume they get Clemens. But um, if they want one more, it needs to be a speed slot type guy. Um, But even then, though, like this is where you guys can give your opinions. I don't think it's necessary to, to bring in uh fourth receiver in this recruiting class they have steven johnson um they've got mcmillan already committed let's assume they get clemens i don't think they need to go out and and find a fourth receiver
0: Yeah, didn't we do that exercise in the drive up or down? I forget if it was – we've done a lot of driving to Seattle and back recently. I can't remember if it was drive up or down. We did the exercise of like, okay, if you add another receiver, what's like their best – like either they're going to have to be awesome right away and be better than one of Oregon's like 10 receivers, or they're going to be like the seventh guy. They're going to be kind of in a Dante Thornton spot. And that doesn't mean that they're not valuable because down the line they will be. Oregon doesn't have an immediate need at wide receiver unless the expectation right now is that – Micah Pittman or Devin Williams or somebody some of the other players are gonna transfer I'm, I'm the first two I mentioned because not transfer but they'll probably would look at going pro I don't know if their ceilings are quite there Devin's playing awesome recently Micah's having his better games but I don't think either have really shown that they're like first or second well, obviously not first day but second or maybe even third day draft picks I don't know what their ceilings are um, if both those guys come back it's like it's really hard for me to sit here and go yeah you add let's say Kevin Coleman or whoever the other receiver is, maybe Kev, maybe Coleman's the outlier because he's a five-star top, top-tier top guy. But, like, it's going to be tough for those guys to really play a lot at Oregon next year, and Oregon's got so much talent already. So it, I feel like it's almost like a luxury selection as opposed to a necessity, but that might be me in the – maybe that's my own perspective that's uh, disagreed upon here.
2: I I don't know. I think it kind of depends on – Who it is. If there's, if there's movement, and obviously it depends on who it is movement, meaning if if Oregon players, if wide receivers specifically decide to transfer, decide to go to the go to the pros. Um, I think Kevin Coleman, if he's interested, is like a must take as a five star high four star recruit. Uh, Darius Clemens is, you know, a kid from your backyard, basically. Um, I think he'd be a a, a really good pickup as well. I like his tape. Um, But yeah, Oregon's wide receiver room is really talented um if you compare the just the players from uh like who were you know your starting wide receivers in for most of the games in 2019 to who they are now it's you know it's a night and day difference and to keep adding to that room isn't necessarily a bad thing um however i personally think that they should you know maybe save out a spot for you know more defensive line help more linebacker help you know something on the defense um I think it's a really good class to begin with uh, I the with how deep Oregon's wide receiver room already is and is already adding, you know, two or three more wide receivers in their 2022 class. And I'm not necessarily sure if they need to add four or five. I think mm-hmm. it's okay that Nicholas Anderson and Cetegna, uh decommitted. I think it frees up a spot for somebody else who could help on the defensive line or you know, something like that. But who knows?
1: <laughs> who knows?
2: I don't. <laughs> I can let's provide edit. all the I can provide all the thoughts I can on that, but it's not up to me who makes the decisions. <laughs>
0: let's let's end the podcast on that note. Who knows? <laughs>
1: all right, that's gonna do it for us uh here on the Austin Audibles. Thank you for sending in your questions. Continue to do so as always. Um keep your eyes out for an Oregon men's basketball, Oregon women's basketball podcast later. This week we'll crank one of those out as well as the season starts on Tuesday for both teams. Doubleheader at Matt Nat Arena, uh, Eric, Jared, and I, um, we will be there in totality covering all of those games, um, or both of those games, I should say. So keep your eyes out on that as well. And then, hey, we got Washington State this weekend uh, at Austin Stadium, 730 kick, so keep your eyes out for – more shows coming up this week, previewing that as well. Until then, you've been listening to the Autzen Audibles podcast. Talk to
0: you later, folks.
1: Peace.
3: Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.